So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. John's Gospel. That's what that text comes from. And that shows us the folly of one of the most significant political leaders in history. He's a Roman governor by the name of Pontius Pilate. Now, what's intriguing is that Pontius Pilate is not known for his kind of culture-shaping achievements. When we think of leaders, we think of someone like Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. We think maybe of Teddy Roosevelt and his national parks. We think of Jimmy Carter and his Camp David Accord or something along the lines of the end of the Cold War and a leader like Ronald Reagan. But Pilate has no such positives attached to his name. There's no positive attached to his leadership because as the Roman governor in charge of Judea and Jerusalem... He was leading over a really tumultuous time in this cultural area. In his region that he was given to lead, he was struggling. Now, he was struggling because in the Roman Empire, there was a group of Jewish people, and the reality is they were kind of hard to lead. They were hard to maintain any kind of leadership over, any lordship over for the Roman Empire. They were difficult for them to lead. Now, you might say, well, why is that? Because the religious leaders of that time period presented unique challenges. Unique challenges that were not really found in any other region at the time. And so Pilate is in this place where he is leading, but he has constant tension. He's trying to lead, and yet the Jewish leaders are pushing back against him for religious reasons. But there's also cultural issues, political issues. And as we've acknowledged, there are religious issues as well. You see, tension ran both ways. As he led them, the the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders sort of chafed under his leadership as well. And so as he would strive to lead, they would struggle to be governed. And yet it is during this reign 
during Pilate's reign in this region. The fact of the matter is the Jewish leaders in that time period were not the biggest issue that Pilate had to face. They certainly were there. There certainly was tension. And yet the bigger issue was a man named Jesus and a movement of people who followed him. The fact of the matter is Jesus of Nazareth was an enigma to him. He did not understand him, and he did not understand how to lead in that context. He simply could not control the move of Jesus and of his people. So on the morning of the Passover, Jesus is brought before Pilate, who asks him some very significant and very poignant questions. He says, are you the king of the Jews? What have you done? Are you a king? And then this one, so significant. What is truth? Jesus His response is strong. (laughs) But the response was not what the Roman governor wanted to hear. The response was not helpful to the Roman government. So Pilate declared Jesus innocent of the crimes that were being brought against him. But here's where the leadership challenge comes into play. He failed to do anything to quell the pressures that Jesus was creating in the culture. He stood back. He didn't lead. In a supreme act of cowardice, he asks the crowd who should be released from crucifixion, Jesus or the robber Barabbas. Their choice puts into motion what happens next. took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe they came up to him saying hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands Pilate went out again and said to them see I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe Pilate said to them, Behold the man. What's taken place is Jesus has suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's the first of three truths that you and I are going to consider tonight in the Word of God that is expressed in the Apostles' Creed. We proclaimed it earlier and we are going to engage with it uh, more, more succinctly throughout our evening. And so the public mocking and the public scorn of Jesus has begun. He's getting beaten, he's getting whipped. Any instrument of pain is used to create a flogging, which was one of the most inhumane things that the human body could actually experience. And yet that's exactly what 
Jesus is suffering under Pontius Pilate. Now here's the curious part. Just moments before, he declared Jesus innocent. Yet the flogging happens and he does nothing. The flogging causes Jesus great physical pain. And what was believed to be the the course of action that many people, many scholars believe that, that Pilate was seeking in this moment was to create such pain and agony in Jesus that the others might say, no, you know what, he's gone through enough. We don't need to crucify him. Perhaps avoiding crucifixion. But the angry mob, they wanted more than that. In a display of utter disrespect, the Romans placed a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and they pressed down and they did so firmly. Mark's gospel captures the details. It says, and they began to salute him. (laughs) Hail, king of the Jews, they said. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Meanwhile, Pilate attempted to maintain a posture of neutrality. Symbolically, washing his hands before the crowd. Theologian J.I. Packer calls this gesture perhaps the goofiest gesture perhaps of all time. You see, once the masses tired of their mockery and their brutality, they pointed Jesus' battered body back to Pilate for one final verdict. And rather than stand up for Jesus, the man in whom he had found no fault, there's no guilt in this man, Pilate cowers once again and reintroduces Jesus with the words, Behold, the man. So numerous times Pilate was acknowledged. There's no fault in him. Numerous times he failed to protect Jesus. And numerous times, over and over and over again, Jesus suffered. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas. And Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The narrative we just heard has three important parts for us tonight. It three important parts include the cross, the soldiers, and the body. All of those will help us consider in some degree the depth of what Jesus experienced and what we proclaim in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus was crucified, he died, and he was buried. So first, let's consider the cross. Detailed in Matthew chapter 27, it we, what we just heard Pastor Kevin read. And what we just heard is the fact that the intensity quickens as Jesus carries the weight of the cross. On his beaten and battered body, he carries his own instrument of death. Then laid upon the hardwood... Iron nails get hammered into his wrists, into his hands, into that juncture right there. His feet then are likely placed one on top of the other, and then they are nailed to the bottom of the cross. And in that pain, he is then risen high above the earth for all to see, for all to witness this man's agony. There's much symbolism when it comes to the, the shame of the cross. We can put a cross in the middle of our worship center and we can wear crosses around our neck and they symbolize certain realities. But what we often miss is that dying on a cross was humiliating. And then carrying that instrument of death was even more humiliating. Ultimately, going outside of the city where he was, in fact, crucified was also humiliating. All of these things are what Jesus had to bear. A theologian and a church historian by the name of Justo Gonzalez captures the significance of what's happening he said that Jesus was crucified is the most astonishing admission of the entire Apostles' Creed. So we can go work through this theory Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. This is the pinnacle. 
For those early Christians to affirm that their Lord was crucified would be as scandalous as for someone today to affirm faith in a person who was executed in an electric chair. What the creed actually affirms is that the Lord, Jesus, died like a common criminal under Roman law. He died. Then in verse, uh, verses 23 through 27, we move from the cross, then we get to the soldiers. After performing the crucifixion, it was this cultural norm for the garments of the of one who was crucified to be divided up among the soldiers. Now, typically four garments were worn, one garment for each soldier. But Jesus had an additional garment, a seamless tunic. It was woven all the way from the top to the bottom. And so they had to cast lots to see who would get this additional item. And this fulfilled the prophetic words that are found in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus is spoken of specifically in the Psalms. So standing beside the cross, witnessing all of this are Jesus' mother Mary, her sister Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and John. All were there to give their honor to Jesus. All were there for him. And this is where Jesus speaks directly to his mother, directly to John with words of love. Words to encourage them in the midst of their grief. Jesus exhorts them to care for each other. Even in the midst of his grief, he is thinking of others, thinking of the people that he loves. And so once he speaks his care, he then receives a sponge of vinegar for his thirst. And then come the words. The words that literally changed all of human history. It is finished. Those words, it is finished, are the words of eternal life. Those are the words of eternal life. And Jesus willingly bore the sins of the world upon himself in that moment. He became obedient unto death, willingly laying down his life for those he loves. Jesus' death was accomplished something that no one else could. No other death would accomplish what Jesus' death did. It created an opportunity for reconciliation, for redemption, for all who will repent and believe the good news, the good news of Jesus on a cross declaring it is finished. Now finally, in the latter verses, we get to the body. Upon the cross, Jesus bore all the pain, the physical anguish, the mental anguish, the emotional anguish, and of course, the spiritual anguish that anyone could ever experience. All of it was heaped upon him. Everything. All of it. And yet on the cross, 
Jesus bore something that you and I have no understanding of. Only Christ understands. He experienced the wrath of God. He experienced the wrath of God for your sin and for mine, for all the sins of men. Jesus bore that upon himself for every lie, for every lustful thought, for every time we gossip about another, for every moment we covet something else. Jesus bore the weight of it all. The wrath of God. Church, I pause because I hope we can sense the weightiness of it. The significance of the wrath of God upon Christ. Once Jesus' spirit left his physical bodies. Details of what the soldiers did with his body are also significant. So we can focus on the cross, we can focus on the soldiers, we can focus on the body, and then even what happens after his passing. You might say, well, why? Because what they do with his body actually links and connects with the truth we find in, old, in the Old Testament. Listen to the words of Numbers chapter 9. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the pastor, they shall keep it. What that means is Jesus' bones were not broken, unlike most who endured crucifixion. Everybody else who would experience that, their bones would be crushed, not so Christ's. And you'd say, well, why does that matter? Because this was the fulfillment of the words that we just read in the Pentateuch regarding the Passover lamb. And what that shows us is that Jesus is the true lamb of God. Jesus is the true lamb of God. And so the cross, the soldiers, the body all point to one reality. The man who hung on the cross was in fact the promised Messiah. Jesus was and is the son of God. And so this is why Believers have gathered through centuries. Since Jesus died upon the cross, believers have gathered on a day like today, on Good Friday. And we do so with somber tones. We do so through contemplative, reflective worship. Because Jesus, the sinless one, the perfect one, surrendered his life on a cross, taking upon himself the sin of the world. And that was displayed in the wrath of God. And he did so because of his great love for his people. Why would he do that? So that men, women, and children might know him that we might in fact know him, that we might hear of his great love and that we might in turn respond in repentance of our sin and belief in the good news. That's why he does it. 
And so here in the quietness of this moment, I want to invite you right where you are to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, to lay it at the foot of the cross, whatever it is in your life, you know what it is. Repent and believe. Repent of your sin and receive the finished work of Jesus upon the cross to cleanse you and to restore you to the purpose that God made for you. And that's a right relationship with him. Sinner, I've got good news for you. Jesus died for you. Church, it's because of the sacrifice that we're going to do something that the church has been doing for generations. We're going to celebrate communion together this evening. It's the way that Jesus himself encouraged us to remember and reflect upon him, upon his death. And so I'm going to come over and walk over to our table tonight. And as I do, I want you to be preparing your heart to come to the table. Now, what we're going to do tonight is a little bit different than normal. You see we have tables here, and we have a table in the back as well. I want to invite you, when you are ready, to come and receive the elements from our elders. And as you receive, they're going to say something very special to you. They're going to say, this is the body of Christ given for you. And I want to encourage you to take that and go back to your seat. Reflect upon what that means for you tonight. Re- reflect upon what Jesus did upon the cross for you. And then when you're ready, I want to invite you to take the elements right where you are. So in preparation of that, I want to share what Jesus says. He says, at the Last Supper, Jesus took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, Do it in remembrance of me. So I would encourage you, come down the aisle, go out the sides, come back in, fill back in. If you're in the back, the table is in the center. I want to invite you to come to the table. The table is a place for all who would repent and believe, who would trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. It's not a table of perfection. It's a table of people who need perfection and receive it through Christ and his work on a cross. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
for good reason. The heart-wrenching details of what we've experienced at the cross with the crucifixion of Jesus does bring men, women, and children to repentance and faith. It is the most significant sacrificial act in all of human history. But I want you to know the story does not end there. The story continues. And the final truth on Jesus' journey that must be considered tonight from the Apostles' Creed is that Jesus descended to the dead. Having fulfilled all the requirements of the Old Testament law upon the cross, Jesus then moves to the realm of the dead. That's where his sacrifice removes any power held by any principalities of the spirit world. This kind of disarmament or this kind of authority is highlighted in multiple uh, places, particularly in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. In Colossians 1, Jesus has rescued God's people from the domain of darkness. Here's what he writes. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption in whom we have the forgiveness of sin. Then again, later in Colossians 1, and again in, Paul, in uh, Colossians, chapter t- Colossians 2, Paul tells that Jesus is the head of all the principalities. He is above them all. You see, when Jesus declared it is finished, that included any demonic force, any principalities rule over those who believe in him. If you were in Christ, it is finished. But the downward movement of Jesus is complete in Colossians, in the words that Pastor Kevin just read. In that letter, what we find is that he helps believers understand that Jesus moved from heaven to earth through a virgin, and then he moves from the earth to the dead following his crucifixion. And say, well, why? Why is, why is that important? Why does that matter? So that all will see that Jesus has provided freedom at the cross. Jesus alone has provided freedom. The question is, do you know this freedom? Have you experienced this freedom for yourselves? Friends, it is only found at the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did for you on that cross. That is the only way that we can experience freedom for ourselves. And yet you may wonder, why does, why does the fact that the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus went to the realm of the dead, why does that matter for us? Because Jesus' departure from this world, he descended into the realm of the dead, and that places a clear emphasis on one specific thing, and that is his physical death. He died physically. J.I. Packer explains it this way. He says, Jesus entered not Gehenna, but Hades. And what that is, is that's the realm of the dead, those who have died. And therefore, it is from a genuine death, not a simulated death, that he rose. 
but that's on Sunday. What makes Jesus' death so significant for us and descending into the dead is that he has gone before us into that realm. We don't have to fear because Jesus has gone before us. For all who have faith in Jesus Christ, there should be no fear in death because Jesus is the one who paved the way. He's passed from this life into the next and he has conquered death and he has taken away its sting. That's what it means when he died and he descended into the realm of the dead. He went there first. And through his death, Jesus puts sin and the power of death to the realm of the dead. So church, as we reflect, as we reflect upon the journey that we have been on tonight, Jesus has given us three truths, or when we look at the life, we can actually see three truths. And what we've considered tonight are some of the core truths of the gospel, as is represented in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus suffered, Jesus died, and Jesus descended to the dead. You see, Jesus' life and brutal death serve as a turning point in human history. It is at the cross that everything changed. Because Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross, because of that, you and I can be forgiven. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross, he took the wrath of Almighty God upon himself and he paid the payment that you and I could not pay. He is our propitiation. And so church, when we come to the cross, when we reflect upon the words of the Apostles' Creed, I want you to remember one very significant phrase. Jesus paid it all. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.